Hello and welcome to QBD Book Club, the podcast. I'm Victoria Carthew and today we discover that not all heroes wear capes. In fact, some heroes push a trolley around, make a mean cup of tea with a nice vovo on the side. With thanks to Penguin, I'm chatting to Amanda Hampson about a wonderful generation of ladies known as the Tea Ladies. Let's take a listen. Amanda, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on the Crime Club, Victoria. Oh, look, thank you for joining us with such an unexpected crime story, because I think these days so many crime stories are gruesome and brutal, and this is just a really lovely read. Was that part of your intention? Absolutely. The news is brutal and dark, and so I set out right from the start to write escapist fiction and set it back in the 60s because, you know, (laughs) a lot of us boomers feel they were our golden years, being a teenager in the 60s. And it's a really fun era to sort of go back in and explore. Absolutely. Now, we know you've been around a long time in in the writing sense. This is your seventh fiction book. But am I right? It's your first real foray into into kind of the crime side of things. Yes, it is. And I have been around for a long time, Um, feeling it. Um, Yeah, look, I have always loved crime. I don't like gore. I don't like explicit crime. Um, I'd like them to sort of, you know, pan to out the window when it gets gory. But I do love the mystery. And when I was young, you know, in that era between being a kid in the library and being an adult, I read virtually every Agatha Christie So that kind of blueprint was always in my mind. And then I, it was in the back of my mind that I'd like to to write that and to write a series because I'm just working on the second one now. And I saw a Facebook post on a page called Australia Remember When. And it was of a tea lady with her trolley and the double-handed teapot. And... There were hundreds of comments saying, oh, I remember Hilda, our tea lady. She was so lovely and da-da-da-da. And then someone said, oh, the tea lady knew where the bodies were buried. And I literally (laughs) could envisage the whole story from that comment. Isn't that fantastic? And I love to hear that that's where the gem of an idea came from. And you know you're so right about that kind of nostalgia. Um, There's the Annabelle Crab series at the moment about going back in time in the corner store and she's had one previously. And all generations actually love that because we can't, it's hard to imagine sometimes what came before and that's what you've given us. Yes. Yeah, I suppose there were definitely dark sides to the 60s, Vietnam War being one of them. But I think we all feel they were simpler times, times when we to some extent knew what was going on. Um, So, and it was, of course, fun to explore a time when people didn't have mobile phones. They communicated by telephone or telegram or letter or going to see someone. So that makes, for a crime mystery, that makes things very slow. People have to tell other people and communicate so, um, yeah, that was that was fun to look back on as well. Well, and also I imagine in terms of writing, to slow yourself down because so much of our crime that we read now and so many books are fast-paced and they're getting tracked on the web and they're getting, whereas you actually had to slow yourself down to write this. Yes, because it's not just about the mystery. It's about, I write a lot about the relationships of older women with other women, you know, because they're so important to us later in life. And because I was a teenager in the 60s, it's very different from actually researching that era. 
you know, I very much remember the vibe of the 60s and the kind of optimism. So, yeah, it's lovely to sort of take myself back there and be in the tea ladies and hear them having their little squabbles and then then getting together to find a clue. And, yeah, that was great fun. It's interesting you say the vibe because there's so many different types of vibes in this book. So there's, it's very much, it is quite a girl power book in a lot of ways because the, all these awesome women, mostly older women are in there and doing their thing. I got a little bit of Thursday Murder Club. I also got a little bit of Ladies in Black, you know, that wonderful story about department stores. And there's so many, and I almost felt like I know it's set in the sixties, but it almost could have been many generations back in, in Australia because there's some real sort of common threads, aren't there, into the way we grew as a country and the way our women sort of came out and started to own it yes and I think you know when I depict older women I depict them as I see them as very capable always underestimated and able to do and handle many many situations so that's what you see in the tea ladies there I mean these these women who were tea ladies in the 60s have been through the war some of them had been in service you know, they have a lot going on. But one of the key things that I realised straight away about a tea lady is an important kind of trope of the amateur sleuth is to be underestimated and ideally a little bit invisible. And they have the perfect cover to be everywhere in their companies and knowing what's going on and collaborating with their information. Absolutely. So long before the generation of tea bags, and I love there's a little mention in there when they first people start talking about them. Long before tea bags, there were tea ladies. Tell us about the role they played in, in businesses and in society. Well, there's no sort of definitive history about them, but it seems that they started back in the sort of 19th century from, you know, there being servants in people's houses. And then offices were started up and then people went, Who's going to make the tea here? Well, we'd better hire a lady to do that. And then they continued. And in the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they were very common. Most, almost all government departments had them. Uh, most good-sized firms had one. And they they played a very pastoral role. You know, they went, they served the managing director upstairs with the Royal Dalton and the chocolate biscuits and then, you know, the sales department and the, the accounts department and then the factory floor, the trolley came round, they made a cup of tea, they knew how everybody took their tea, later it was instant coffee and, um, yeah, they were just absolutely commonplace. And like you said, they, they could fly under the radar because a lot of times they were just going about their business overhearing the conversations. So that, in this case, when we get to the mystery, does allow, um, you, you can kind of just hear and listen to the clues without people realising that you are. Yes, and I, I love the idea that they could tap into other tea ladies. So, you know, they say, um, Hazel will say, well, who's the tea lady at the fire station now when there's this arson of this building next door? And, of course, the tea lady at the at the fire station knows a lot about arson because she was in the fire service during the war. So she comes down and she's full of information. So they start tapping into a whole network of tea ladies. I also wanted to depict it not as a, um, a, a job of servitude, but an honourable profession. They talk quite a lot about, okay, this is something, you know, not that's not in the tea ladies code because one of the tea ladies really has a criminal background. And no locked door stands in her way. Um, and so they're often reminding Irene of the tea ladies code. 
I do. Um, I actually, the word I use when I talked about them is noble. I think it is such a noble profession because, and they actually, you know, so many times you give us a great snapshot because they do provide comfort and insight. And our, our main heroine, uh, Hazel, is such a smart lady. So we have four main tea ladies in our book. And, and it begins with Hazel, who is our, our, our superhero. I call her my superhero. She really spots something that, that's out of the ordinary. That's how it begins. Yes, that's right. So she sees a woman in a building next door, a bond store that's been closed for years, and she's immediately kind of alerted to something on the woman's face. And the woman writes something in the window for her, and nobody sort of believes her. Says, well, there wouldn't be anybody in that bond store. It's been shut for years. And then she finds these letters, of course, reversed, uh, Russian letters, and that leads her on a trail where she gets involved in Russian gangsters and the great Moscow circus that toured Australia that year. So one of the things I love to do, and this is so much fun, is to kind of integrate things that were happening in Australia at that time and weave those sort of naturally into the story. Well, it does because it gives us that kind of like historical element to the stories. And you do, um, I wasn't alive in the 60s, but I do remember all of these times that are being talked about. And it's quite lovely. I actually found myself going back and looking those dates up and wondering how these things might have happened. So thank you. Um, and so once once Hazel sort of sees this young woman, then there's a bit of drama, isn't there, that unfolds on, on the laneway uh, where their building's all back on too. Yes, so what was tricky about this book, and I have a totally new respect for crime writers, is the fact that, you know, if you've got two or three um, mysteries running at the same time, you know, they have to, there's a lot of timing involved in interweaving them and then weaving the clues back in. So we have, you know, a little bit of a threat to the tea lady's livelihood. Um, so the, the four tea ladies meet in a laneway behind their works, which are in Surrey Hills, which was entirely garment industry in the 60s. Uh, there were tariffs then and clothes were made in Australia. So uh, there's a kind of catastrophic fashion event, let's say, when Jean Shrimpton wears just a, the most modest little frock to the um, to the races, the Flemington races, and it turns the whole fashion industry upside down. The great so, disruptor, isn't she? Like it was that real sort of disruption of fashion. Exactly. And it's funny because I was kind of imagining what might happen because I can remember what was happening with fashion then. And the more I researched it, the more, you know, it was completely spot on that between one day and the next, people said, we don't want those old frocks. Because up until then, 1965, we wore the, the bodice frocks with a little matching belt and the, the full skirt. Suddenly, everybody wanted these shifts above the knee. So there's that's going on at the same time, and that's sort of running in the background. But then the building, that bond store, burns to the ground uh, the day after Hazel has seen this young woman in trouble. So then she feels a kind of duty as a tea lady <laughs> to pursue <laughs> what happened. Why was that woman in the bond store? And so she uncovers all kinds of, um, let's say, uh, connections within her company and outside to the criminal world between them they they get on a track that the police just can't see happening and off they go so that's where the the fun starts 
And it's interesting you talked earlier about, you know, when you are being any type of sleuth that you want to be underestimated. And that was the interesting thing is not only was she underestimated for what she was doing in her workplace and around, but also by the authorities as well. So she just kind of went about a merry way. Yes, and she's got that thing that I do see in older women is that she is never ruffled. You know, when uh, she gets locked up by the gangsters, she's more like, oh, dear, this is not what I expected. Um, And on she goes, you know. So she's the sort of person that you want to have as a friend. And uh, Betty is her best friend, her most adoring best friend, always backs Hazel and always backing her up and agreeing with her, much to the annoyance of, of the others. And Irene's always running her own track. And Merle is the ex-school teacher who um, kind of looks down on some of their activities and has her own opinions about things. So there's a good kind of uh, vibe between the four of them. It's interesting you say that, actually, because there's, it is, you know, inherently there's this lovely story of friendship and kindness and doing the right thing running through it. Then you've got Merle who just, like, finds the worst in everything and you feel like you know those women, right, and you might go, oh, stop it, and then in the end you have to just kind of block them. But there's a real, really beautiful um, kindness about Hazel and Betty and, and that friendship um, and it, and how it kind of holds them strong, you know, like it, it serves them well as people that they've got each other. Yes, they get frustrated with Merle, but she does make a mean cream sponge, always with the, uh, as Betty is a great fan of sponges and cakes, always with the tinned peaches on top, which was very important back in the day. Um, yeah, but they're never mean. They they discover that they have to keep things from Merle because of the kind of a, an information leak there, but they just kind of do that quite subtly. They're never... Uh, they're never kind of nasty or mean, but uh, they're strong. They're, they're strong friendship and they're strong women. And I'm not going to give anything away, so we'll tread lightly around it. But Hazel also has something else going on. She has her own mystery in her own life. And I actually, I thought she was amazing the way she dealt with everything and coped because I don't know that a lot of, a lot of us would cope with what Hazel was coping with. It's that time of year. Our catalogue is out now for the mums and the other great women in your life. A book absolutely is the gift that keeps on giving. It gives that woman in your life, your mum, your grandma, your carer, time out. I reckon they've earned it. So take a look at the QBD Mother's Day catalogue out now. Well, I think she's a woman who can kind of screw her emotions down and see things very clearly. Um, yeah, so her husband, Bob, uh, who she's been married to for five years, her first husband died in the war and her daughter's growing up and she met Bob and it was very romantic and they've been married five years and he suddenly starts to behave very oddly and she finds a few clues that she just cannot understand and she ends up having to follow him and has the absolute shock of her life when she finds out what he's really up to. So, yes, we can't say more about that. No, we can't say more than that. And it was just, I just thought it was lovely. And I, I can see what you're saying about the challenge of to put those clues in and where you weave them in. I'm sure it was actually kind of a real learning curve in terms of how you intersperse all of those things into the story. Oh, yeah, it's one of those ones. The second one has been a lot easier, I think, because it is a skill that your mind, uh, you know, can adjust to. I burnt quite a few neural pathways doing the first one. And so this time 
I've gone very roughly through a very rough draft. Then I'm going back and weaving it back and weaving it back because, you know, you have to have that kind of free creative thinking to bring the the um, unexpected into it. But at the same time, you are throwing in clues that you say to the reader, look over here, but not too closely. Have a look at <laughs> the instead so that this information is there and you can come back to it. You say, oh, that's what that letter was about. I didn't take much notice of that, but now that's significant. Oh, so yeah, it really is a skill. You did it very well indeed, I have to say. Such a great insight also into the, the social hierarchies of the time in life, but also certainly in the workplace. You talked about serving the tea to the managing director down to the factory floor, but you got it was, it was very divided, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I worked in a factory in my backpacking days in my 20s. I worked in a factory, long story, uh, in Liverpool in England. And I was a queen bee. I worked in the accounts office and we had these massive machines that you put the garment, the cards into the stock cards and press buttons and it would all go completely wrong when I did it. But uh, we never had anything to do with the factory girls. And they, it was them that referred to us as the queen bees. There were about six of us working in the office. And so I had an idea then that, okay, yes, there would be. The, you would never have the, the factory workers going up to the managing director's office. It just wouldn't happen. So you've got the almost visible stratas. When companies were all in the same building, which they're not now, but back then there were three or four-story buildings in Surrey Hills everybody was in the same building. And the other thing that really struck me, and I'm sure it wasn't that hard to write about because you've probably lived through it as well, just the inbuilt inbuilt kind of casual sexism, you know, of that era, that the men literally say, we know what's best for you, we know what you want to wear. I mean, just, oh, it's so frustrating, but it was so real. Yes, absolutely. And, And that's why I would just really wanted to make this a time when because fashion flipped over in the night, um, you know, Pixie, who was the Girl Friday, as, as we used to be called when we were young, um, in the company, she's the granddaughter of the, the owner, um, she suddenly seizes her moment to say, well, we can make these dresses. And, you know, there's a lot of resistance from the top floor because women have never been involved in these decisions, never um and so yeah so it's a, a, a right a, quite a reworking within the company and an upset for the management for that to happen and even the interesting things around and you know, so I think for a generation of readers that would because it's, it, it doesn't feel like long ago but it is it's 60 70 years ago but um that you couldn't go into still at that stage couldn't go into some hotels unaccompanied you know you just can't imagine that as recently as that we women had so didn't have those sort of rights no, not at all. I mean, women had, couldn't get a loan. They had to have their husband's permission to borrow money. There are all sorts of absolutely draconian laws then. But I actually selected the um, Hollywood Hotel in Surrey Hills as the watering hole of the tea ladies because that hotel was always open to women. Women had free run of the Hollywood Hotel. So that's what it's it's very well known for. And do we know why? Like what was, what was the... Why, why they just advanced in their their thinking. Yeah. They just um, perhaps saw the inequality of it. But 
Yeah, I mean, bars were very different back then. There would be a lady's snug. And, of course, you know, my my nana uh, would take me to pubs when I was a kid and we would go into the garden bar. Kids were allowed in pubs, weirdly enough, uh, or <laughs> ladies' snug. And the women always drank shandies and the children drank shandies. Really? Yes. <laughs> that was considered quite appropriate then. I mean, everyone was smoking and... Yeah, yeah. That's um, the other interesting thing that really stands out, isn't it? Because in this current gener generation, it's been so frowned upon. But the smoking was very much a part of, and you know, one of our characters has a pipe, and and it was just, it was such a different era for women and smoking as well. Absolutely, and you know, I can remember, you know, I always describe Irene, the sort of criminally minded one, as always wearing her penny and her slippers. And I remember women back in the day that always wore just these comfortable slippers, always had a cigarette hanging off their lip. Um, that was just kind of normal back then. And the occasional woman smoking a pipe. Yeah, pipes were big in the 60s. My dad smoked a pipe. So I actually realised I knew a lot about pipe smoking. In fact, my first ever smoke was with a pipe. Mum and dad were out, packed the pipe, had a go, never smoked after that. Disgusting. I do recall my my pop. I had one in like in the late seventies, and I do remember that. And I, it, it was fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I remember that quite clearly. It's funny. I was also thinking about you know this is so much about the rag trade and trade and, and and that era. You know now everyone's rallying against fast fashion and all the things that are going on. The way we get our clothes and throw them away. And this was very much kind of slow fashion. So it's almost like we are coming full circle, but they've got a way to still make it financially viable. Yes, that's right. And it's look, what I found really interesting, because I started my research at the Jewish Museum, and because it turns out that the, the establishment of that area of Surrey Hills was very much because of Jewish refugees coming to Australia, they could start a business with a sewing machine. Some of them learned to sew on the ship. Some of them had experience, some had been in the rag trade, and they turned out some garments, they sold those garments and they built from there. So that was uh, very much a Jewish area and they they brought that whole area to life with that industry. And I have to tell you there was an incredible learning curve for me because biscuits are a very important part of your book. Now, what is your preference, Amanda? What, what sort of picky are you? Well, look, I, I try not to keep biscuits in the house. That's not good for a writer because you're just like, I just need a cup of tea and a... Tim Tam, I don't mind a Tim Tam, but you know you can't beat the milk arrowroot. You know, dipped in the tea, scotch. Butter finger. or no butter? No butter. No butter. No, that's going too far. When I was a kid, yes, of course we used to have butter and jam them together. But yeah, Kingston, you can't go past a Kingston. So I've, I've got a macaron here, which is obviously far too modern, but I, I, I was stunned. I actually Googled and checked it because you have a, there's a Tim Tam in the book and I thought, no, the Tim Tams haven't been around since the 60s, but they have. I can't believe they're that old. I know. And people have such affection for these biscuits. You know, biscuits, do we, they have literally been in the background of our lives since we were kids. It's very true. Well, I'm a. If you were going fancy, I'm a shortbread cream girl. Otherwise, a Scotch finger is probably kind of where I would go with that. <laughs> buttery, buttery aftertaste. <laughs> Wonderful. But that was, you know, one of Hazel's most endearing qualities. She knew she could identify people by their biscuit and how they had their tea. And it's such a, I know it's such a nice way to be remembered by someone, isn't it? Rather than the colour of your hair. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now you did mention it off the top because I was going to ask. This is not the. This is not the last we'll see of our tea ladies. 
No, no, I'm just about to hand the next manuscript into the publishers. So it's just been lovely to be back with the tea ladies, hearing them chat, hearing what they're up to. Yeah, it's been really a little bit easier. I mean, I don't find writing easy. I'm, I'd be surprised if anybody does, but it's been nice to be back in that group again and um, finding a new story for them. And you did because you did give us some insights into that network of tea ladies because everywhere had them. But it, it was kind of interesting to discover where else they were. You'd be able to bring characters in from all sorts of places, won't you? Absolutely. And, you know, a friend uh, texted me the other day and said, oh, look, you know, there's this picture of a company, the line all faded out, and the name of the company was Imperial Slacks. And I was like, oh, that is going in the next book. I just love these you know, empire fashion wear, imperial slacks. These firms were really common when we were young with all these kind of imperial names. Uh, so setting that scene and getting the getting the reader just completely immersed in that world without being pointed about it, I guess, is what I'm trying to do. Oh, no, it's it's fantastic. And they're, they're great ladies. And it was so, it was really fun to be um, in a story with them. And I think you, what you touched on earlier really sits with me. They were very capable, you know, despite whatever age they were supposed to be. At times, I found myself wondering how old they were, because they were so capable. And I just love that you've written these great, strong women. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, women are strong. We know that. Absolutely, especially in that generation. Well, congratulations and thank you for bringing us these wonderful tea ladies. Love Hazel, love Betty, love Irene, love Merle, <laughs> despite her faults. Um, and we look forward to seeing what the next installment is. But for now, uh, the tea ladies will, will uh, be on the shelves and congratulations. I think there'll be a lot of uh, fun reading throughout the winter for everyone. Thanks so much for having me, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company today on QBD Book Club, the podcast. We'll chat again soon.